The Story of Siavesh, Part 2, in Shahnameh, by Fedosi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Siavesh, Part 2 When Kay Kavus heard the fate of his son, and all its horrible details were pictured to his mind, he was thrown into the deepest affliction. His warriors, Tus, and Gudars, and Bahram, and Fariborz, and Farhad, felt with equal keenness the loss of the amiable prince, and Rostam, as soon as the dreadful intelligence reached Sistan, set off with his troops to the court of the king, still full of indignation at the conduct of Kavus, and oppressed with sorrow respecting the calamity which had occurred. On his arrival he thus addressed the weeping and disconsolate father of Siavash, himself at the same time drowned in tears. How has thy temper turned to naught, the seed which might have grown and cast a glorious shadow? How it is scattered to the barren winds! Thy love for false Sudabeh was the case of all this misery. She, the sorceress over whom thou hast so oft in rapture hung, enchanted by her charms, she was the cause of this destruction. Thou art woman's slave, woman the bane of man's felicity. Whoever trusted woman, death were better than being under woman's influence. She places man upon the foamy ridge of the tempestuous wave, which rolls to ruin. Whoever trusted woman? Woman. Woman! Kavus looked down with melancholy mien, and, half consenting, thus to Rostam said, Surabe's blandishments absorbed my soul, and she has brought this wretchedness upon me. Rostam rejoined, The world must be revenged upon this false Surabe. She must die. Kavus was silent, but his tears flowed fast, and shame withheld resistance. Rostam rushed without a pause towards the Shabastan. Impatient, nothing could obstruct his speed to slay Surabe. Her he quickly found, and rapidly his sanguinary sword performed its office. Thus the sorceress died. Such was the punishment her crimes received. Having thus accomplished the first part of his vengeance, he proceeded with the Persian army against Afrasiab, and all the Iranian warriors followed his example. When he had penetrated as far as Turan, the enemy sent forward thirty thousand men to oppose his progress, and in the conflict which ensued, Faramaz took Sarkha, the son of Afrasiab, prisoner. Rostam delivered him over to Tus to be put to death precisely in the same manner as Siavesh, but the captive represented himself as the particular friend of Siavesh, and begged to be pardoned on that account. Rostam, however, had sworn that he would take his revenge without pity or remorse, and accordingly death was inflicted upon the unhappy prisoner, whose blood was received in a dish and sent to Kavus and the severed head suspended over the gates of the king's palace. Afrasiab, 
hearing of this catastrophe, which sealed the fate of his favorite son, immediately collected together the whole of the Turanian army, and hastened himself to resist the conquering career of the enemy. As on they moved, with loud and dissonant clang, his numerous troops shut out the prospect round. No sun was visible by day, no moon nor stars by night. The tramp of men and steeds and rattling drums and shouts were only heard, and the bright gleams of armor only seen. Ere long the two armies met, when Pilsam, the brother of Piran, was ambitious of opposing his single arm against Rostam, upon which Afrasiab said, Subdue, Rostam, and thy reward shall be my daughter, and half my kingdom. Piran, however, observed that he was too young to be a fit match for the experience and valour of the Persian champion, and would have dissuaded him from the unequal contest. But the choice was his own, and he was consequently permitted by Afrasiab to put his bravery to the test. Pilsam accordingly went forth and summoned Rostam to the fight, but Give, hearing the call, accepted the challenge himself, and had nearly been thrown from his horse by the superior activity of his opponent. Faramaz luckily saw him at the perilous moment, and darting forward, with one stroke of his sword, shattered Pilsam's javelin to pieces. And then a new strife began. Pilsam and Faramaz fought together with desperation, till both were almost exhausted, and Rostam himself was surprised to see the display of so much valour. Perceiving the wearied state of the two warriors, he pushed forward Rach, and called aloud to Pilsam, Am I not the person challenged? And immediately the Turanian chief proceeded to encounter him, striking with all his might at the head of the champion. But though the sword was broken by the blow, not a hair of his head was disordered. Then Rostam, urging on his gallant steed, fixed his long javelin in the girdle-band of his ambitious foe, and quick unhorsed him, then dragged him on towards Afrasiab, and, scoffing, cast him at the despot's feet. Here comes the glorious conqueror, he said. Now give to him thy daughter and thy treasure, thy kingdom and thy soldiers. Has he not done honour to thy country? Is he not a jewel in thy crown of sovereignty? What arrogance inspired the fruitless hope? Think of thy treachery to Siavash, thy savage cruelty, and never look for aught but deadly hatred from mankind, and in the field of fight, defeat, and ruin. Thus scornfully he spoke, and not a man, though in the presence of Afrasiab, had soul to meet him. Fear overcame them all, monarch and warriors, for a time. At length, Shame was awakened, and the king appeared in arms against the champion. Fiercely, they hurled their sharp javelins. Rostam's struck the head of his opponent's horse, which floundering fell, and overturned his rider. Anxious then, the champion sprang to seize the royal prize, but Human rushed between and saved his master, who vaulted on another horse and fled. Having thus rescued Afrasiab, the wary chief exercised all his cunning and adroitness to escape himself, and at last succeeded. 
Rostam pursued him and the Turanian troops, who had followed the example of the king. But though thousands were slain in the chase which continued for many farsangs, no further advantage was obtained on that day. Next morning, however, Rostam resumed his pursuit, and the enemy hearing of his approach retreated into Chinese Tartary to secure, among other advantages, the person of Kei Hosro, leaving the kingdom of Turan at the mercy of the invader, who mounted the throne and ruled there. It is said, about seven years with memorable severity, prescribing and putting to death every person who mentioned the name of Asfrasiab. In the meantime, he made splendid presents to Tus and Gudaus, suitable to their rank and services, and Zavara, in revenge for the monstrous outrage committed upon Siarash, burnt and destroyed everything that came in his way, his wrath being exasperated by the sight of the places in which the young prince had resided, and recreated himself with hunting and other sports of the field. The whole realm, in fact, was delivered over to plunder and devastation, and every individual of the army was enriched by the appropriation of public and private wealth. The companions of Rostam, however, grew weary of residing in Turan, and they strongly represented to him the neglect which Kay Kavus had suffered for so many years, recommending his return to Persia as being more honourable than the exile they endured in an ungenial climate. Rostam's abandonment of the kingdom was at length carried into effect, and he and his warriors did not fail to take away with them all the immense property that remained in jewels and gold, part of which was conveyed by the champion to Zabol and Sistan, and a goodly proportion to the king of kings in Persia. When to Afrasiab was known, the plunder of his realm and throne, that the destroyer's reckless hand with fire and sword had scathed the land, sorrow and anguish filled his soul and passion raged beyond control. And thus he to his warriors said, At such a time is valor dead? The man who hears the mournful tale, and is not by his country's bale, urged on to vengeance, cannot be of woman born. Accursed is he. The time will come when I shall reap the harvest of resentment deep. And till arrives that fated hour, farewell to joy in hall or bower. Rostam, in taking revenge for the murder of Siavash, had not been unmindful of Kay Khosro, and had actually sent to the remote parts of Tartary in quest of him. It is said that Gudars beheld in a dream the young prince, who pointed out to him his actual residence and intimated that of all the warriors of Kavus, Give was the only one destined to restore him to the world and his birthright. The old man immediately requested his son Give to go to the place where the stranger would be found. Give readily complied, and in his progress provided himself at every stage successively with a guide, whom he afterwards slew to prevent discovery. And in this manner he proceeded till he reached the boundary of Qin, enjoying no comfort by day or sleep by night. His only food was the flesh of the wild ass, and his only covering the skin of the same animal. 
he went on traversing mountain and forest, enduring every privation, and often did he hesitate, often did he think of returning, but honour urged him forward in spite of the trouble and impediments with which he was continually assailed. Arriving in a desert one day, he happened to meet with several persons, who upon being interrogated, said that they were sent by Piran Vizar in search of Kay Kavus. Give kept his own secret, saying that he was amusing himself with hunting the wild ass, but took care to ascertain from them the direction in which they were going. During the night the parties separated, and in the morning Give proceeded rapidly on his route, and after some time discovered a youth sitting by the side of a fountain, with a cup in his hand, whom he supposed to be Kay Khosro. The youth also spontaneously thought, This must be Give. And when the traveller approached him and said, I am sure thou art the son of Siavesh, the youth observed, I am equally sure that thou art Give, the son of Gudars. At this, Give was amazed, and falling to his feet, asked how, and from what circumstance, he recognized him. The youth replied that he knew all the warriors of Kavus, Rostam and Kashvad and Tus and Gudars and the rest, from their portraits in his father's gallery, they being deeply impressed on his mind. He then asked in what way Give had discovered him to be Kay Khosro, and Give answered, Because I perceived something kingly in thy countenance, but let me again examine thee. The youth at this request removed his garments, and Give beheld that mark on his body which was the heritage of the race of Kay Gobard. Upon this discovery he rejoiced, and congratulating himself and the young prince on the success of his mission, related to him the purpose for which he had come. Kay Khosro was soon mounted on horseback, and Give accompanied him respectfully on foot. They, in the first instance, pursued their way towards the abode of Ferangis, his mother. The person sent by Piran Visa did not arrive at the place where Kay Khosro had been kept till long after Give and the prince departed, and then they were told that a Persian horseman had come and carried off the youth, upon which they immediately returned, and communicated to Piran what had occurred. Farangis, in recovering her son, mentioned to Give, with the fondness of a mother, the absolute necessity of going on without delay, and pointed out to him the meadow in which some of Afrasiab's horses were to be met with, particularly one called Bethzad, which once belonged to Siavash, and which her father had kept in good condition for his own riding. Give, therefore, went to the meadow, and throwing his command, secured Bethzad and another horse, and all three being thus accommodated, hastily proceeded on their journey towards Iran. Tidings of the escape of Kehosro having reached Afrasiab, he dispatched Kolbad with three hundred horsemen after him, and so rapid were his movements that he overtook the fugitives in the vicinity of Bulgaria. Khosro and his mother were asleep, but Give, being awake, and seeing an armed force evidently in pursuit of his party, boldly put on his armour, mounted Behzad, and before the enemy came up, advanced to the charge. 
He attacked the horseman furiously with sword and mace, for he had heard the prophecy, which declared that Kehosro was destined to be the king of kings, and therefore he braved the direst peril with confidence, and the certainty of success. It was this feeling which enabled him to perform such a prodigy of valour in putting Kolbard and his three hundred horsemen to the rout. They all fled defeated, and dispersed precipitately before him. After this surprising victory, he returned to the halting place, and told Kehosro what he had done. The prince was disappointed at not having been awakened to participate in the exploit, but Gieve said, I did not wish to disturb thy sweet slumbers unnecessarily. It was thy good fortune and prosperous star, however, which made me triumph over the enemy. The three travellers then resuming their journey. Through dreary track and pathless waste, and wood and wild, their way they traced. The return of the defeated Colbard excited the greatest indignation in the breast of Piran. What? Three hundred soldiers to fly from the valour of one man? Had Give possessed even the activity and might of Rostam and Sam, such a shameful discomfiture could scarcely have happened. Saying this, he ordered the whole force under his command to be got ready, and set off himself to overtake and intercept the fugitives, who, fatigued with the toilsome march, were only able to proceed one stage in the day. Piran, therefore, who had travelled at the rate of one hundred leagues a day, overtook them before they had passed through Bulgaria. Ferengis, who saw the enemy's banner floating in the air, knew that it belonged to Piran, and instantly awoke the two young men from sleep. Upon this occasion, Khosro insisted on acting his part, instead of being left ignominiously idle. But Gieve was still resolute, and determined to preserve him from all risk at the peril of his own life. Thou art destined to be the king of the world. Thou art yet young and a novice, and hast never known the toils of war. Heaven forbid that any misfortune should befall thee. Indeed, whilst I live, I will never suffer thee to go into battle. Khosro then proposed to give him assistance, but Gieve said he wanted no assistance, not even from Rostam. For, he added, in art and strength we are equal, having frequently tried our skill together. Rostam had given his daughter in marriage to Gieve, he himself being married to Gieve's sister. Be of good cheer, resumed he. Get upon some high place and witness the battle between us. Fortune will still from heaven descend. The god of victory is my friend. As soon as he took the field, Piran thus addressed him. Thou hast once, singly, defeated three hundred of my soldiers. Thou shalt now see what punishment awaits thee at my hands. For should a warrior be a rock of steel, a thousand ants gathered on every side, in time will make him but a heap of dust. In reply, Gieve said to Piran, I am the man who bound thy two women, and sent them from China to Persia. Rostam and I are the same in battle. Thou knowest, when he encountered a thousand horsemen, what was the result, and what he accomplished. Thou wilt find me the same. 
is not a lion enough to overthrow a thousand kids. If but a man survive of thy proud host, brand me with coward. Say I'm not a warrior. Already I have triumphed over Colbard, and now I'll take thee prisoner, yea, alive, and send thee to Cavus. There thou wilt be slain to avenge the death of Siavash. Turan shall perish, and Ephrasiab, and every earthly hope extinguished quite. Hearing this awful threat, Piran turned pale, and shook with terror, trembling like a reed, and saying, Go, I will not fight with thee. But Give asked fiercely, Why? And on he rushed against the foe who fled, but t'was in vain. The command round the old man's neck was thrown, and he was taken captive. Then his troops showered their sharp arrows on triumphant Give to free their master, who was quickly brought before Ke Khosro, and the command placed within his royal hands. This service done, Give sped against the Tartars, and full soon defeated and dispersed them. On his return, Give expressed his astonishment that Piran was still alive when Ferengis interposed, and weeping, said how much she had been indebted to his interposition and the most active humanity on various occasions, and particularly in saving herself and Kehosro from the wrath of Afrasiab after the death of Siavash. If, said she, after so much generosity he has committed one fault, let it be forgiven. Let not the man of many virtues die for being guilty of one trifling error. Let not the friend who nobly saved my life, and more, the dearer life of Kehosro, suffer from us. Oh, he must never, never feel the sharp pang of foul ingratitude from a true prince of the Kianian race. But Give paused and said, I have sworn to crimson the earth with his blood, and I must not pass from my oath. Khosro then suggested to him to pierce the lobes of Piran's ears and drop the blood on the ground to stain it, in order that he might not depart from this world, and this humane fraud was accordingly committed. Khosro further interceded, and instead of being sent a captive to Kavus, the good old man was set at liberty. When the particulars of this event were described to Afrasiab by Piran Vizar, he was exceedingly sorrowful, and lamented deeply that Kehosro had so successfully effected his escape. But he had recourse to a further expedient, and sent instructions to all the ferrymen of the Jehun, with a minute description of the three travellers, to prevent their passing that river announcing at the same time that he himself was in pursuit of them. Not a moment was lost in preparing his army for the march, and he moved forward with the utmost expedition, night and day. At the period when Give arrived on the banks of the Jehun, the stream was very rapid and formidable, and he requested the ferrymen to produce their certificates to show themselves equal to their duty. They pretended that their certificates were lost, but demanded for their fare the black horse upon which Give rode. Give replied that he could not part with his favourite horse, and they rejoined, 
Then give us the damsel who accompanies you. Give answered and said, This is not a damsel, but the mother of that youth. Then, observed they, give us the youth's crown. But Give told them that he could not comply with their demand, yet he was ready to reward them with money to any extent. The pertinacious ferryman, who were not anxious for money, then demanded his armour, and this was also refused. And such was their independence or their effrontery, that they replied, If not one of these four things you are disposed to grant, cross the river as best you may. Give whispered to Kay Khosro, and told him that there was no time for delay. When Kave, the blacksmith, said he, rescued thy great ancestor Feridun, he passed the stream in his armour without impediment, and why should we, in a cause of equal glory, hesitate for a moment? Under the inspiring influence of an auspicious omen, and confiding in the protection of the Almighty, Kay Khosro at once impelled his foaming horse into the river. His mother, Farangis, followed with equal intrepidity, and then Give, and notwithstanding the perilous passage, they all successfully overcame the boiling surge, and landed in safety, to the utter amazement of the ferryman, who of course had expected that they would be drowned. It so happened that at the moment they touched the shore, Aphrasiab, with his army arrived, and had the mortification to see the fugitives on the other bank, beyond his reach. His wonder was equal to his disappointment. What spirits must they have to brave the terrors of that boiling wave, with steed and harness riding over the billows to the further shore? It was a cheering sight, they say, to see how well they kept their way, how Farangis impelled her horse across that awful torrent's course, guiding him with heroic hand to reach unhurt the friendly strand. Aphrasiab continued for some time, mute with astonishment and vexation, and when he recovered, ordered the ferrymen to get ready their boats to pass him over the river, but Human dissuaded him from that measure, saying that they could only convey a few troops, and they would doubtless be received by a large force of the enemy on the other side. At these words, Aphrasiab seemed to devour his own blood with grief and indignation, and immediately retracing his steps, returned to Turan. As soon as Give entered within the boundary of the Persian Empire, he poured out thanksgivings to God for his protection, and sent intelligence to Cavus of the safe arrival of the party in his dominions. The king rejoiced exceedingly, and appointed an honorary deputation under the direction of Gudars to meet the young prince on the road. On first seeing him, the king moved forward to receive him, and, weeping affectionately, kissed his eyes and face, and had a throne prepared for him exactly like his own, upon which he seated him, and calling the nobles and warriors of the land together, commanded them to obey him. All readily promised their allegiance, excepting Tus, who left the court in disgust, and repairing forthwith to the house of Fariboz, one of the sons of Cavus, told him that he would only pay homage and obedience to him, 
and not to the infant whom Give had just brought out of a desert. Next day, the great men and leaders were again assembled to declare publicly by an official act their fealty to Ke Khosro, and Tus was also invited to the banquet, which was held on the occasion, but he refused to go. Give was deputed to repeat the invitation, and he then said, I shall pay homage to Fariboz as the heir to the throne, and to no other. For is he not the son of Kekavus, and worthy of the regal crown and throne? I want not any of the race of Pashang, none of the proud Turadian dynasty. Fruitless has been thy peril, Give, to bring a silly child among us, to defraud the rightful prince of his inheritance. Give, in reply, vindicated the character and attainments of Khosro, but Tus was not to be appeased. He therefore returned to his father and communicated to him what had occurred. Gudarus was roused to great wrath by this resistance to the will of the king, and at once took twelve thousand men and his seventy-eight kinsmen, together with Give, and proceeded to support his cause by force of arms. Tus, apprised of his intentions, prepared to meet him, but was reluctant to commit himself by engaging in a civil war, and said internally, If I unsheath the sword of strife, numbers on either side will fall. I would not sacrifice the life of one who owns my sovereign's thrall. My country would abhor the deed, and may I never see the hour when Persia's sons are doomed to bleed, but when opposed to foreign power. The cause must be both good and true, and if their blood in war must flow, will it not seem of brighter hue when shed to crush the Taza foe? Possessing these sentiments, Tus sent an envoy to Gudars, suggesting the suspension of any hostile proceedings until information on the subject had first been communicated to the king. Cavus was extremely displeased with Gudars for his precipitancy and folly, and directed both him and Tus to repair immediately to court. Tus there said frankly, I now owe honour and allegiance to King Cavus. But should he happen to lay aside the throne and the diadem, my obedience and loyalty will be due to Faribors, his heir, and not to a stranger. To this, Gudars replied, Siovash was the eldest son of the king, and unjustly murdered, and therefore it becomes his majesty to appease and rejoice the soul of the deceased by putting Kehosro in his place. Kehosro, like Feridun, is worthy of empire. All the nobles of the land are of this opinion, excepting thyself, which must arise from ignorance and vanity. From Nozar certainly thou art descended, not from a stranger, not from foreign loins. But though thy ancestor was wise and mighty, art thou of equal merit? No, not thou. Regarding Khosro, thou hast neither shown reason nor sense, but most surprising folly. To this contemptuous speech, Tus thus replied, Ungenerous warrior, wherefore thus employ such scornful words to me? Who art thou, pray? Who? but the low descendant of a blacksmith, 
No Hosro claims thee for his son, no chief of noble blood, whilst I can truly boast kindred to princes of the highest worth, and merit not to be obscured by thee. To him, then, Gudars. Hear me for this once, then shut thy ears for ever. Need I blush to be the kinsman of the glorious Carver? It is my humour to be proud of him. Although he was a blacksmith, that same man who, when the world could still boast of valour, tore up the name-roll of the fiend Sahak, and gave the Persians freedom from the fangs of the devouring serpents. He it was who raised the banner and proclaimed aloud, Freedom for Persia. Need I blush for him? To him the empire owes its greatest blessing, the prosperous rule of virtuous Feridun. Tus wrathfully rejoined, Old man, thy arrow may pierce an anvil, mine can pierce the heart of the calf mountain. If thy mace can break a rock asunder, mine can strike the sun. The anger of the two heroes beginning to exceed all proper bounds, Kavus commanded silence. When Gudars came forward and asked permission to say one word more, Call Hosro and Feriboz before thee, and decide impartially between them which is the most worthy of sovereignty. Let the wisest and the bravest only be thy successor to the throne of Persia. Kavus replied, the father has no choice among his children. He loves them all alike. His only care is to prevent disunion, to preserve brotherly kindness and respect among them. After a pause, he requested the attendance of Fariboz and Khosro, and told them that there was a demon fortress in the vicinity of his dominions called Bahman, from which fire was continually issuing. Go, each of you, said he against this fortress, supported by an army with which you shall be equally provided, and the conqueror shall be sovereign of Persia. Faribors was not sorry to hear of this probationary scheme, and only solicited to be sent first on the expedition. He and Tus looked upon the task as perfectly easy, and promised to be back triumphant in a short time. But when the army reached that awful fort, the ground seemed all in flames on every side. One universal fire raged round and round, and the hot wind was like the scorching breath which issues from red furnaces, where spirits infernal dwell. Full many a warrior brave, and many a soldier perished in that heat, consumed to ashes. Nearer to the fort, advancing, they beheld it in midair, but not a living thing, nor gate, nor door. Yet they remained one week, hoping to find some hidden inlet, suffering cruel loss hour after hour. But none they could descry. At length, despairing, they returned, worn out, scorched, and half dead with watching, care, and toil. And thus, Fariboz and Tus discomfited and sad, appeared before the Persian king. Then it was Hosro's turn, and him Kavus dispatched with Give and Gudars, and the troops appointed for that enterprise, and blessed them.
When the young prince approached the destined scene of his exploit, he saw the blazing fort reddening the sky and earth, and well he knew this was the work of sorcery, the spell of demon spirits. In a heavenly dream, he had been taught how to destroy the charms of fell magicians and defy their power, though by the devil, the devil himself sustained. He wrote the name of God, and piously bound it upon his javelin's point, and pressed fearlessly forward, showing it on high, and Give displayed it on the magic walls of that proud fortress, breathing forth a prayer, craving the aid of the almighty arm, when suddenly the red fires died away, and all the world was darkness. Khosrow's troops, following the orders of their prince, then shot thick clouds of arrows from ten thousand bows in the direction of the enchanted tower. The arrows fell like rain, and quickly slew a host of demons. Presently, bright light dispelled the gloom, and as the mist rolled off in sulphury circles, the surviving fiends were seen in rapid flight. The fortress too distinctly shone, and its prodigious gate through which the conquerors passed. Great wealth they found, and having sacked the place, Khosrow erected a lofty temple to commemorate his name and victory there, then back returned triumphantly to gladden King Kavus, whose heart expanded at the joyous news. The result of Ke Khosrow's expedition against the enchanted castle, compared with that of Faribor's, was sufficient of itself to establish the former in the king's estimation and accordingly it was announced to the princes and nobles and warriors of the land that he should succeed to the throne and be crowned on a fortunate day. A short time afterwards, the coronation took place with great pomp and splendor, and Khosrow conducted himself towards men of every rank and station with such perfect kindness and benevolence that he gained the affections of all and never failed daily to pay a visit to his grandfather Cavus, and to familiarize himself with the affairs of the kingdom which he was destined to govern. Justice he spread with equal hand, rooting oppression from the land, and every desert, wood and wild, with early cultivation smiled, and every plain with verdure clad, and every Persian heart was glad. End of the Story of Siavash, Part 2, by Fedosi.